Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. I want us to start the summer and our time together thinking about the foundation of our faith. So we believe as Christians that the Bible reveals to us the God who made all things. And it tells us about his plan to both save and to redeem sinners like you and me. We call that the good news of the gospel. And so those two big things, when you open your Bible and you read anywhere in that Bible, in in your mind and in your heart as a believer, you can know and trust that there is something in whatever you're reading about the God of the gospel or the gospel of God. And those two huge ideas makes up an anchor that grounds us as the church. So you know how an anchor works, right? It gets dropped from a ship and it keeps that ship moored to where it is in the water. It doesn't let the the waters take it somewhere it doesn't want to go. And so the God of the gospel and the gospel of God is the anchor that holds and grounds us as the church. So we as the church should probably know about this God and about this gospel. So the Apostle Paul is writing to a guy named Titus, which is why this letter is called Titus, right? And he's a pastor of the church in Crete. So Crete was a a pagan town, a pagan city, and the church there was very, very young. So Paul in Missionary Journeys, uh, he planted a church in Crete. He set up pastors and elders there. And while the church was very young, they were growing And so they needed instruction, right? I think about my two-year-old, Abe, he is growing, right? Like it's wild. If you just watch him on the stage or you watch him run around or try to like play pool with the big kids is what he says. Um, He's growing, like his coordination is getting better. His speech is getting better. But if we just like let him run and like do whatever he wants, he would probably grow in some weird wonky ways, right? He would start to think things are right that maybe aren't that right. Or he would think that this is how you do something because he's never been taught, not necessarily the right way. So as this young little human is growing, he needs instruction on how to kind of uh, guide and direct that growth. And that's what's happening in Titus. That's what's happening for you and me as we gather together as God's people week by week. We as believers ought to be growing in our knowledge and our faith and our practice of what it means to be Christians. But we also recognize like little children, which is what the Bible calls all of us at times, we need instruction. We need guidance to make sure that we're going in the right way at the right kind of pace. So in chapter three of Titus, Paul's wrapping up his letter. It's the last chapter of the letter. And he's calling believers to holy living that should mark Christians. So you should be in Titus chapter three. Let me just read. We're going to be in verses three through seven today, but let me just read verses one and two to give you some context. Paul says, remind them. So he's telling uh, Titus, the pastor of the church in Crete, remind them, that is the congregation, that is the believers there, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. All right, so 
those are two verses that are pretty self-explanatory. Like, what does it mean when Paul says that we should be courteous? Oh, yeah, I think I know what that means. Like, what does it mean to be obedient? Oh, I think I know what that means, right? So these are very foundational truths that should mark all Christians as how they live their life. Now skip down to verse 9. He also calls this same congregation to keep the main thing the main thing and to promote and pursue unity. So look at verse 9 with me. But avoid, there's that word avoid, you know, in verse 2 he says avoid quarreling. Verse 9 he says avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So so in other words, Paul's saying to Titus, and Titus is going to say to his congregation, and the Spirit is saying to us, there are things for which you and I should not get bent out of shape about. We can have convictions and thoughts about things, but we should avoid foolish controversies. We should avoid living our lives in tension with other people, especially for things that are not super profitable, that we can good godly Christians can disagree on. Verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. So there are people in the church, Paul is saying, who are just stirring up discord and frustration and division, and they're known by that kind of pattern in their life. He's like, warn them. Tell them not to do that. Like, that's not what Christians do. They don't just stir up strife and division. They love one another. They encourage one another. They build each other up. If they do it again, warn them again, right? If this becomes this pattern in their life. But ultimately, he says, look, the church can't, kind of coexist with people who are factious because ultimately that will break the church apart. So he's giving us this kind of, these bookends of how the Christian ought to live in the life of the church. And that's the context for where we're going to be this morning. Right in the middle of these calls for very practical living, Paul is going to give us the bad news of why we need to be saved and why he might need to warn Titus about these kind of problems that could arise and the good news of the gospel that gives us life instead of death, and the great hope and the great promise of what's to come for those who follow Jesus. So I'm going to read just verse 3, and then we'll pray, and we'll, we'll really dive in, okay? Verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, I am so thankful that your mercies are new each morning. And by the power of your spirit and the truthfulness of your word, you remind us all that we need to know. Because by your spirit and through your word, we come face to face with the knowledge of God. You reveal yourself to us. And when we know you, we can have the promise of eternal life. So Lord, I pray that this morning, as we think about the bad news of our state as sinners, 
and the good news that God has sent a Savior and the great promise that we have of eternal life, would you, for every one of us in this room, enlarge our hearts to feel the joy and the glory of our God? Would you renew and transform our minds to understand and believe his word? And we pray that as we believe these things and lean into these things, we might find ourselves leaning in more closely even to one another as we grow in godliness and in gospel truth together as the church. Help me to teach this with clarity and conviction and the authority of your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we got to start with the bad news. And verse three is not a good one, right? I mean, verse what we just read is not super encouraging for anybody. And, and think about what's being said in what I just read. Verse three, Paul is writing to Titus to then turn around and say to the congregation. So if I'm thinking that I'm pretty good, like, you know, I'm, I don't use bad language. I don't look at stuff I'm not supposed to. I've got good friends. I go to church every Sunday. I think I'm doing pretty good. And then I read a letter that the apostle Paul says, hey, let me tell you about who I was before I became a believer. You're like, oh man, like if I'm thinking that I'm doing good and this is where Paul was, then maybe I need to have a new set of eyes to see where I really am. So the good news of the gospel is only good in the context of the bad news that we need to know right here where believers in the church once were. In one verse, Paul sets the stage for us to behold just how bad things are for those who are still in their sin. And what Paul says is not just for some pagan town of people in the first century. So don't disassociate yourself in 2023 from the church in Crete in the first century and think, Well, we're more modern and we've grown and we've progressed and so we're better. No, by the inspiration of the Spirit, we are now hearing this same word for ourselves. All of us, every one of us was born into a state with a kind of condition that Paul lays out here. So let's just walk through these phrases together. First, we were foolish. We were foolish. Because of our sin, because of the desires and the temptations and the the bending of our hearts away from God, we think the wrong way is the right way. And like we're convinced of it. We thought we could see, but we were blind. And so often this leads to destruction, both for ourselves and to those around us. If I'm living in sin, if you and I are walking in sin, Paul says, we're walking in foolishness. We're like a blind person who thinks he can see. So, and yet we get frustrated when we bump into the walls, right? Like we're walking around thinking everything's fine and we hit something, something pricks us or pokes us and we get upset about it. It's because we're foolish. Next, we're disobedient. God has placed people in your life and in mine who serve as authorities for you to honor. In the same way that I've talked about giving instruction to my son, he needs that because he's two. 
He doesn't know. And, and my job is not to create some kind of little soldier who only does what he's told all the time and never thinks for himself, but to, to cultivate and to instruct him to become his own person who is wise and is godly and is holy and is uh, able to discern what is good and what is not good. And yet, all of us who have all of these kinds of authorities in our lives, whether it be parents or teachers or people in the church or maybe a coach or maybe a boss if you're an older student with a job, we all feel this kind of, this kind of allergy to submitting to authority. Right? When somebody tells us to do something and we want to do it, cool. Like, totally fine. You know, hey, I want you to go um, run this errand. And you're like, oh, you want me to run to Starbucks and get everybody coffees? Great. I'll do that and get myself a drink. Fantastic. But when an authority tells you to do something you don't want to do, and you actually have to submit your preference to what that command is, that's when we feel this allergy, this resistance in us to say, I shouldn't have to do that. I shouldn't have to submit myself to you. Who are you in my life? I'm the one who's in control of my life. This is the the words of someone who is still in their sin. We think we know better, and so we disobey. Next, we were led astray. So we're disobedient to the authorities that God has put in our life. And yet those people in our life who should not be leading us, should not be having authority in our lives, end up taking us in precisely the wrong directions because we follow them in our foolishness rather than the wise counsel of the authorities God has given us. So maybe it's a a good friend who means well, but like you is a fool. (laughs) Maybe it's social media and the pressure that you feel when you see all of these things that really aren't real, but they feel real, whether it's an influencer or a kind of person or somebody in your school with more status than you. Maybe it's school itself. Maybe it's the relationships that you have there with your other classmates or with your teachers and the the pressures and the, the, the temptations to conform in different ways to where you are at school. Maybe it's the, the broader culture and just things that you experience, the things that you see that, that lead you in a direction that feels right, that feels like it's going to lead you to life, that feels like it's going to give you some satisfaction or some joy or at least some pleasure, you name it. We can be led astray by all sorts of things, which leads us to see what Paul says next. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. So why are we easily led astray in our sin? Because our passions and desires are distorted by sin. Think of your heart as being like a kind of compass. And when I say heart, I don't mean just like ooey-gooey romantic, I love him with all of my heart. No, like in the Bible, your heart is kind of like the seat of your soul. So it's kind of your your feelings and desires as well as your understanding of things. So think about your heart as a kind of compass, okay? So if you are wanting to go in a certain direction, you look at the compass and you go in the direction that it tells you to go. And you trust that the direction that this compass is telling you is the right direction. 
if that is wrong, then that compass is decalibrated. It's, it's not calibrated to actually tell you what it's telling you. So it might say, if I'm looking at a compass, well, I'm saying it's, this says north is this way when actually north is that way. And you could be following this compass as faithfully as you know how to do in walking in this direction, but it's leading you in the wrong direction. Our hearts are the same way because of sin. We feel and think and believe that we are going in the right direction. And the passions and the pleasures and the desires that we have because of our sin lead us in a way that makes us feel like what we're doing is good and right and helpful and will lead to life and to joy and to satisfaction. But our compass is decalibrated. And because we're just living in blind foolishness, running towards the wrong things and listening to the wrong voices, we are enslaved because all we're doing is looking at the compass and going, I'm going where that tells me to go. I'm going where that tells me to go. I'm going where that tells me to go. And it's just telling you to go in the wrong way. And what is that way eventually going to lead to? Well, Paul says next, we were passing our days in malice and envy. Malice and envy. That life lived in opposition to God produces malice and envy in our hearts. Now, what do those two words mean? Malice is this kind of deep-rooted hatred. And, and I know that like saying that we hate something is, is probably in your culture pretty flippant. Like pineapple on pizza. Oh, I hate that. Hot take, it's good, right? So um, yes, thank you. We, we use words like love and hate and we really don't really feel the weight of what those things mean. But malice is this deep rooted hatred. It's a commitment not to want another's good, but to want another's harm. And why do we have malice in our hearts? Because we have envy. We see what other people have and realize that we don't have that thing. And that thing becomes this this hook in us that begins to, to pull and to fester and to get infected. And it produces not only this envy of why don't I have what they have? Why can't I do what they do? Why can't I enjoy what they enjoy? Why won't they give to me what they give to him? And that envy over time produces malice in our heart towards those other people. This life leads to brokenness. A broken relationship with God, broken relationships with others, and a broken relationship with ourselves. We don't know how bad of shape we're in. It's why the Bible uses the language of being lost. Like we're lost in our sin. I don't know if you've ever been lost before, like really lost before. It is a terrible feeling, a terrible feeling. Like I don't know where I am. I don't know where to go. I'm just here. 
and it's not even that I'm here. It's I'm here and I'm not supposed to be here. Like I should not be where I am and here I am and I don't know how to get out of it. That's lost. The Bible is even more emphatic. Not only lost, it says we're spiritually dead. Dead. And all we can do is the last phrase. We were hated by others and hating one another. That's all, that's, that's all that this leads to. It's going to lead me to hate others and be hated because I'm just going to live in malice and in envy. I'm going to be frustrated. I'm going to run after things that I think are going to lead to joy, but just lead to more frustration. Students, this is what the world has to offer you. It will look and sound and feel much more attractive than what Paul explains here. But ultimately, what the world can offer you will only lead us further into the darkness of foolishness and blindness. But the good news is that the bad news is not all there is. You need to feel that. You need to feel what Paul is saying, that for every one of us, this is who we are on our own. And so I can't answer that question for you of, have you made this movement out of being in the darkness and now being in the light? But if you are in the darkness, this is where you are. And one of the most wonderful, fantastic, beautiful, glorious things about the movement out of being lost to being found is recognizing I'm lost. I'm lost. I don't know where I am. And my hope and my prayer is that for some of you who are lost and you don't even know it, that today might be the day as you hear this word that you come to your senses like the prodigal son eating slop from the pig trough going, this isn't right. I should not be here. This is not where I'm supposed to be. And the Bible agrees. Let's keep reading. Look at verse four. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us. We'll stop there. The good news of the gospel. Second big idea from this passage. The good news begins with these startling truths. God is good. He is loving. He is kind. And he is a savior. This God who made all things who doesn't need anything, who made you and me to be image bearers of him, to, to be like a mirror that reflects back his glory and his attributes, his goodness. And yet we took hammers and shattered that mirror and said, I just want to reflect whatever I want to reflect. That same God who made you has now provided a way for you to be made right for you to be brought out of darkness and into light. How does he do this? How does he save us? Well, Paul wants to be clear on how he doesn't do it. So let's keep reading. Verse four, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. 
So not according to any works done by us. And soon as this is huge, this is huge because the majority of your relationships in this world, the reality of living in a broken world is built on what can you do for this other person? What can you offer? What can you bring to the table? What kind of qualities or achievements or products can you give to show yourself worthy of some kind of value? And if we're not careful, we'll think that God is the same way. And we'll think, I got to do the right things. I got to go to church so many times. I've got to read my Bible so many times a day or a week or whatever. I've got to pray this. I've got to do all these things. He does not come to give us what we deserve. So according to his mercy, he saves us by the washing of regeneration, Paul says, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So what's, what's going on in those two things? The regeneration, the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Spirit. Regeneration is the making alive of something that was dead. So something was alive, it dies, it comes back to life. That's regeneration. So the classic example, right, is like a lizard who loses its tail, Right? It can like just basically like unhitch and run off to escape a predator. And that tail regenerates. It regrows. This thing that was cut off, that's no longer alive, yet begins to grow again and becomes alive. It regenerates. And so if regeneration is the making alive of something that was dead, God saves us by taking us who were dead in our sins and Think about this picture. He washes us in such a way that we are now alive. It's like he washes off the death and cleanses us to bring us life. And the the picture that we're all familiar with that we're going to get to see today, praise God, is the picture of baptism. So the the picture of baptism, the the ordinance of baptism is us getting to see with our eyes what this text is communicating about what happens in our hearts. It's this visible display, this visible picture of here is a whole person being plunged into waters who was dead, who was lost, who was in the darkness, who was foolish, who was disobedient, who was led astray, who was enslaved to their passions and pleasures. They are plunged to death. And yet, through this washing, comes up alive. Alive. When we're submerged in the water, we see a picture of being completely cleansed. And when we arise out of the water, we see the picture of a new life bursting forth. And this happens, Paul writes, this washing of regeneration happens with the renewal of the Spirit. So now, students, our hearts and our minds are renewed. They're repaired. They're restored. They are recalibrated by the Holy Spirit himself. Those who have the Spirit will have their whole lives reshaped by the presence and the power of God. Isn't this amazing? Like, 
Like it's not just that God leaves us in the dark as we deserve. If God were to leave us in the dark, he would still be just. He would still be righteous. He would still be God. But he doesn't do that. He takes us from the dark and makes us new creations. He washes us. He gives us life. But not only does he do that, he takes up residence in us. He dwells in us. He abides with us so that we become more and more like him day by day. Paul says, this God is loving and kind and a savior. But how can this be? How can God do this? How how can he save sinners? How can he who is righteous take someone who is unrighteous and make them righteous? How can he who is light take somebody in the dark and bring them into the light? He's good. We're not. He's righteous. We're not. He can't just snap his proverbial divine fingers and make our sins go away. In order for God to remain God, to remain just, to remain holy and save us, then our sins have to be dealt with. So the Spirit comes to renew us, verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. How does God send his spirit to renew us into life through Jesus, through Jesus. We get salvation. We get the spirit. We get new life through Jesus Christ. Jesus, the son of God, the human man who never sinned, who took our place on the cross and died, the one who rose from the dead and ascended back up to heaven. It is through him that we can be saved. He made a way for us when there was no way. He was wise for us when we were foolish. He was obedient for us when we disobeyed. He never went astray. He was never enslaved to sinful passions. He never carried malice or envy. Hatred did not mark him, but he was hated. And he was hurt. And he was killed. And he bore the wrath of God for sin in your place and mine. This is the good news of the gospel. This loving, gracious, kind God saves. God saves. And very quickly, let's see the promise that awaits all those who put their faith in that God and that gospel. Verse 7. So that. So Paul says, all these things I've just said mechanics of the gospel, the bad news of our sin, the good news of redemption. This has happened so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That leads us, number three, to the great promise. These things are for us 
so that by being justified, by being made right with God, we would become heirs, heirs, those who will receive an inheritance in eternal life. So by his grace alone, we were made right with God. And the promise that awaits all those who have been made right with God is eternal life. So we are no longer fools in the dark. That's not what identifies you as a person anymore. If you trust Christ, you're no longer a fool being led astray in the dark. You are an heir of a king. And that inheritance is eternal life. I don't know how much you think about heaven or eternal life. I think about it not as much as I should probably. I think about it when I have to wait. When I have to wait for things. There's, all, there's things that all of us have to wait for, right? Like some of us are about to turn a certain age and we get like a phone, right? I don't know if you've ever experienced that, right? You're like, when you turn 13 or when you turn 14 or whatever it is, you can have a cell phone. And like the day you turn 12, you're like, <laughs> like, right? It just, it fills you with this kind of eagerness that you don't really know what to do with. You just kind of have to live with. Or maybe, maybe like the classic example is like going to bed on Christmas Eve, you know? You're like, can we just open like two presents now? Like, can we? I'm like, no, you have to wait, you know? There are smaller things for which we wait, like phones and presents. There are larger things for which we wait, like the salvation of a loved one or the mending of a relationship or someone's suffering to come to an end, or being reunited with people that we love who have passed away. We all have to wait for things. And when I have to wait, I'm reminded that eternal life means that the waiting is over. And I think, hopefully what you hear what I'm saying is, is that you waiting for things now should prompt your heart to think about waiting for what's been promised. Because the, the measure of how we feel in the midst of our waiting is usually in proportion to how much we have devoted ourselves to that thing. So if I really want a phone, I'm like salivating over it because I've devoted myself to what that thing has promised me, or at least what I think it's promised me. And if I don't feel that tension, then I probably haven't put much stock into what that thing has promised me. And I wonder if we began to really wait for heaven, how that might change the way we wait for other things and change the way we live our life. Think about what is being promised here. 
no more sin. Like no more sin. And I don't know where you are in your life where you would think which one is more delightful to you. You may think, man, there's coming a day where people will no longer sin against me. Like they'll no longer be unkind. Like there's coming a day where where no one will ever say anything mean to you ever again. No one will ever give you like a cold shoulder. No one will ever hurt you. That could be where you are. Or you may think, man, I'll never say the wrong thing again. Like, I'll never, I'll never sin again. Everything sad in your life will be untrue when that day comes. That everything broken will be restored. Enemies will become friends. You'll have clarity for all of the sorrows in your life. You will experience right thinking, right feeling, right seeing, and right doing forever. And that's not even the best part. The best part of this great promise is that we will see Jesus. We'll get to see him. The promise of fullness of joy, finding pleasures at his right hand forevermore will be fulfilled then and increasingly forever and ever. But that fullness is relative. So so go with me on this. You and I, you've heard me use this illustration before. You and I could go to a sporting event. Let's say we go to a, um, let's say we go to a, a football game. And we can go to this football game and we all have various levels of knowledge about a football game. Let's say we're going to the Iron Bowl. So like all of us have at least some uh, interest maybe just for any other reason than like we're in Auburn. And so it's like something that everybody does, something that we all can like kind of get get on board with. We can enjoy, we can celebrate, we can have fun, right? So like we can go to that football game and have the best seats in the house and get to watch the game and celebrate and have fun and and like, and our team wins. Let's just say like the best of all possible worlds takes place, okay? Well, you and I can have a certain level of fun and interest and joy in what's going on with us observing this football game. But that's going to be different than maybe Anthony Brown or Trey Wages or Brian Payne. Folks who have been on that field 
who know this game in a way that we don't know because we haven't experienced it, because we haven't been through those practices, because we don't really see all the intricate complexities and details of the things that are going on that most people miss. So we can go to that same game and say, I had fun, I enjoyed it. And they can go to that game and say, I had fun, I enjoyed it. And we mean different things. We mean different things. But we mean the same thing. So when the Bible promises you and me fullness of joy in the new creation, what does that mean? It means that in this life, as we grow in our knowledge of God and in our knowledge of his word, as we grow in holiness and producing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, as we grow in being followers of Christ who look like him, who, as Paul says in Corinthians, give off the aroma of Christ, we will grow in our capacity to say, you bring me fullness of joy. And what I want for you is to see that you can spend your whole life doing that. You can grow in your knowledge and your understanding and your practice of eternal life that awaits you. And it will be the best use of your life. It will be the best use of your time. It will be the best use of your energy. It will be the best context for your sorrows. It will be the best context for your joys it will be the best life you can live. The best life you can live. So I want to pray for you as we think about this great promise. And we don't have a lot of time. There's some discussion questions that'll be on the screen. And maybe for just a moment, you want to look to your left and to your right and just maybe think through some of the things that I've said. I knew I was going to go long. But I want to start this summer, these new students with all of us just kind of resetting and being reminded, why are we here? Because we were lost and God made a way. That's why this church exists. That's why the church exists. Because we're people who were lost, who've been brought into God's family, who've been called heirs with an inheritance and eternal life and a hope that we will be where he promises us we will be. So let me pray.